Good afternoon, brothers and sisters, girls and boys. What a blessing it is that we may be in church again for the second time on this day to join together in worship of our triune God. A hearty welcome to all who are present here, also to all visitors, and to all those who have joined us via the live stream from within Australia, but also for those from PNG and Canada who are joining us. May the preaching of the gospel message direct our hearts and minds in faith and trust to our Saviour Jesus Christ and cause us to live our lives to the praise of Him. There's some announcements from the consistory. Following the election meeting, consistory met briefly in the consistory room this morning and appointed Brother Ashley Mulder to the office of deacon. If no lawful objections are brought forward before the 12th of November, the ordination of office bearers will take place, the Lord willing, on Sunday morning, the 19th of November. We've been informed by the Free Reformed Church of Albany that I have extended a call to Reverend A. Paul, minister of our sister church in Mandajong. And we wish him and his wife a lot of wisdom when they consider this call. You're also reminded of the wedding of Brother Sean Dijkstra to Lauren Howling, scheduled for this week, Saturday, the 4th of November, commencing at 11 a.m. in this building with Reverend Poppy officiating. An attestation has been requested by Brother Sean Dijkstra to the Free Reformed Church of Byford. We wish the young couple the Lord's blessing as they take up their position in their new congregation. Consistory as elders only will the Lord willing meet at 7.30 tomorrow evening in the consistory room. All those who are professing their faith next week Sunday are expected to attend this meeting. This afternoon the worship service will be led by the newly ordained Reverend Tim Sla. However, before we commence the worship service, let us sing together from hymn 43 to verses 4 five and six. Hymn 43, verse four, five and six. Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. It's a wonderful privilege to be gathered together for worship this afternoon. 
as we bring him our praise and listen to his word. Please rise. Let's together lift up our hearts to worship our Lord and confess together that our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Amen. Receive now his greeting, grace, mercy, and peace from the Father, from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's sing together from Psalm 15, Who, Lord, may live on Zion's height? We'll sing Psalm 15, stanzas 1, 2, and 3. This afternoon we make profession of our faith with the words of the Nicene Creed. If you'd wish to follow along, that's on page 494 of the Book of Praise. Please follow along with me in your hearts. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us men and our salvation came down from heaven 
and became incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he arose according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who spoke through the prophets. And we believe one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let's also sing in response to this confession with him, six stanzas one and two. to the Lord our God in prayer. Our merciful Father in heaven, you are the creator of all the universe. You are sovereign over all things. We come to you in prayer this afternoon because you have called us into your presence to worship you. This is your purpose for us, to be with you, to worship you and enjoy your glory and power to bask in your love. We know that because you made Adam and Eve to walk with you and talk with you and to do your will. You made them perfect and upright. You saw this and you said it was very good. And yet, Lord, they rebelled against you. They fell into temptation and rejected you. 
They wanted to serve themselves instead of you, their gracious God and maker. And Lord, we confess that they and all their children have become slaves of sin. We confess that we too share that fallen condition, rebelling against you, serving ourselves, spurning your gifts. We too are lost in our sins without you, Lord. Already from the time in our mother's womb to the day we die, we seek to do our wills and not yours. But Lord, our Father in heaven, you have revealed yourself in your word as being gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. You've covenanted with us sinners, and you've called us again to serve you. And all along, your perfect plan was to send your Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Lord God, what a most beautiful and overwhelming gift. We give you thanks that you did not abandon us to death, though that is what we deserve. You sent your beloved Son to die that we might have life. You forsook him that we might have fellowship with you. And Father, you have not only washed us clean and removed our sins as far as the east is from the west, but you have also graciously given us your Holy Spirit to call us back to you, to continue your work in us, to transform our hearts. Lord, if that were not enough to assure us of your love and grace, you bring us here in worship. You give us sacraments to remind us. And so because of your Son, we have confidence to come before you, sinners though we are. And we have confidence to pray, forgive us, Father, for our sins and shortcomings. Do not treat us as our sins deserve, but count them as paid in full. We pray, remove our guilt and help us to find our peace in Jesus Christ. Keep us from the temptations that the devil and the world lay before us and teach us to rely on your Holy Spirit. Transform our hearts and equip us that we may resist the devil and he flee from us. Teach us, Lord, by your word and by your law. Yes, Lord, help us to listen attentively to your word this afternoon. Prepare our hearts to receive your word and to understand it and help us to humble ourselves before it. And we pray, finish the work that you've begun in us. Hear our prayer, not because we deserve it, but for Jesus' sake alone. Amen. This afternoon, will be, the sermon will be from Mark 10. And in connection with that, our scripture reading this afternoon comes, first of all, from Isaiah 52, verse 13. Isaiah 52 to chapter 53, verse 12. This is a very well-known passage about the servant of the Lord and what is clearly a prophecy about our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 52, verses 13. Isaiah 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. 
Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So far from Isaiah, the second reading comes from Mark 10, verses 32 through 34. This is the passage right before our text that I'll be preaching from. Mark 10, verse 32 through 34 provides some context for the sermon. Mark 10, verses 32. We read there, And they, that's the disciples and Jesus, were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So far, the reading of God's word. Let's respond by singing from Psalm 22, which just like Isaiah 53, speaks of the suffering that our Savior went through on our behalf. Psalm 22, stanzas 1, 8, and 9.
As mentioned before, our text this afternoon comes from Mark 10, verses 35 to 45. Mark 10, verses 35 to 45. We read there, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, it wasn't many decades ago that some of our grandparents and great-grandparents knew what it was like to have a servant in the house. Indeed, for thousands of years, it was common to have two very basic groups of people, those whose task it was to serve and those who paid to be served. Domestic servants would cook and clean and take care of the children. Their entire task was to serve. And yet today that concept has almost completely disappeared from Western society, replaced by the service industry and by modern conveniences. That's not to say that we know nothing of what it means to serve, but it's helpful to consider this of what it would be like to spend your days serving a master, working for an insignificant wage to take care of someone else's household tasks. It's helpful because this is a picture that Jesus gives us of what he came to do. It's the picture that he gives us of how we ought to follow him. And in our text, it's the picture he gives to his disciples who've been thinking too much about how, they, about how much they want to be served rather than serving others. And so his theme for this sermon, we'll see that the suffering servant instructs his self-seeking disciples. We'll see first that he instructs them in the way of suffering, and second that he instructs them in the way of serving. 
So first of all, he instructs his disciples in the way of suffering. Jesus and his disciples have been making their way south from Galilee for some time now. So that by the time of our text, we find them in the Jordan Valley near Jericho, just before they begin their ascent to Jerusalem. And it's at this point that the fishermen, James and John, see their window of opportunity. They come alongside Jesus with an important request. Teacher, they ask, can you do for us whatever we ask of you? Now the fact that they're essentially asking Jesus to sign a blank check, and that they're asking Jesus away from the ears of the other disciples already betrays their misgivings. But the opportunity is too good to pass up. Because in their minds, Jesus is going to finally take David's throne and establish an earthly kingdom. Yes, they think that Jesus is about to receive earthly glory. And so they wanted to pre-book the best seats in the house. So that when they ruled his kingdom with him, they would do so at his left and at his right. And after all, didn't James and John deserve that? After all, they had been among the first ones called. They had, been, they had witnessed Jesus' transfiguration. They were part of the inner circle, so to speak. But James and John got it all wrong. You see, Jesus had only just finished telling his disciples that when they arrived in Jerusalem, that he would be delivered over and condemned to death. That he would be mocked and spit on flogged and even killed. We can see that in the passage right before our text that we read. So here Jesus has just told them about his upcoming suffering and the disciples are off dreaming about the earthly glory that supposedly awaits them. Well, sadly, this has been a bit of a pattern. If we take a step back to consider the whole gospel of Mark, we will see that the question that needs to be answered is who Jesus really is. What did he come to do? A couple of chapters earlier, Peter seems to have finally gotten it because he confesses, you are the Messiah, the Christ. But the problem is that Peter and the other disciples have a very specific kind of Messiah in mind. So that when Jesus told his disciples that he would have to suffer many things and be killed, Well, Peter would have none of that. He rebuked his Lord and teacher. And it wasn't too much later on their journey. And again, Jesus told them that once they arrived in Jerusalem, that he would have to suffer and die. Well, that time the disciples responded by quarreling amongst themselves who was the greatest. You see, when we finally come to our text in Mark 10, this is the third time that Jesus has told his disciples about the suffering and death that await him. And yet again, all that we find is confusion, misunderstanding, and selfish ambitions. It would be perfectly understandable for Jesus to have given up right there. Or maybe to sit them down and really drill it into them until it's crystal clear. But instead we see Jesus for the third time patiently calling his disciples and teaching them what it means to follow him. But first Jesus responds to James and John. 
You do not know what you are asking, he says. They did not know what they were asking because they had not understood what Jesus had been trying to tell them all this time. That before he received any glory, he must suffer. Yes, the cross must come before the crown. And so Jesus asks them, Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism that I am to be baptized with? This imagery of drinking from a cup is well known throughout the Old Testament. And it often symbolizes bearing God's punishment. Drinking the cup of God's wrath. Yes, indeed, the cup Jesus is speaking about is the wrath of God against the whole human race. And so also the baptism that he refers to is a reference to his upcoming suffering and death in Jerusalem. In Jesus' day, it was more common to use this word baptize, to speak about being overwhelmed by disaster. There's a sense of being plunged in or swept away. It could be that this is all that Jesus means by the term. But in light of John's baptism earlier and the sacrament that Jesus himself would later institute, it could be that he's also referring to his death as the great cleansing act, where he will identify with the sins of humanity and experience God's judgment in their place. But either way, Jesus' point is that he must bear the wrath of God against the sins of the whole human race. As the appointed Messiah, he would have to drink this cup to the last dregs. Now James and John ought to have known that, but they don't. And so they reply naively, Yes, Jesus, we are able to drink of that same cup. If that's what it takes to earn those spots on either side of you, we can manage that. Well, it's perhaps surprising then, to read that Jesus affirms what they say. He says in verse 39, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. What does Jesus mean here? Well, rather than tell them for the fourth time what his cup will entail, Jesus acknowledges their understanding. Because while they don't understand what Jesus means by drinking the cup of God's wrath. They do seem to understand that there will be some suffering before glory. And Jesus confirms this, acknowledging that they indeed will drink of the cup of suffering and be baptized with the same baptism. And indeed, James and John, like Jesus, would endure great suffering for the gospel. We read later in Acts 12 that James would be the first apostle to die on account of Christ. And John, though likely the last apostle to die, describes himself in Revelation 1 as partner in Jesus' tribulation. John would be imprisoned on the island of Patmos on account of his testimony about Jesus. And so we see that even in the midst of the disciples' misunderstanding, there is a lesson here. As Jesus' followers, his disciples, we do and we will suffer as he did. In a sense, we do drink of the same cup that he did. That will mean different things for each of us, but as we read in Romans 8, we are heirs with Christ, 
provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And in 1 Peter 2, we read that we've been called to suffering because Christ suffered for us, leaving an example that we may follow in his steps. Yes, following Christ means bearing our own cross after him. That doesn't mean that we go chasing after suffering, but it does mean that we ought not to be surprised that the same world who hated him also hates us. And yet, and this is crucial, in any suffering we face, even if we face death itself on account of Christ, like James did, even then we would never come close to drinking the cup that Jesus drank. No, that's exactly why he needed to come. Because we are unable. Even James and John, when they accompanied Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane in his last hours, where he truly confronted the cup of his bitter destiny, we read there that these very two men could not even watch with him one hour. No, they were not able. We are not able. And that's why we need a Savior, brothers and sisters. That's why we need a Redeemer who is able. In Lord's Day 5 and 6, we ask, what kind of mediator do we need? Well, he must be a true and righteous man. Because the same human nature which is sin should also pay for sin. That makes sense. But why must he also be true God? It's because of the weight of our sin. The burden of God's wrath against sin is just too great for us to bear. Only one who is true God will be able to bear the burden of God's wrath. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is that man. And he bore that terrible burden for our sake. Just as he told his disciples he would. He was delivered over to Gentiles. He was mocked, spit on, flogged, and hung on a Roman cross. Yes, just as Isaiah prophesied he would, he was despised and rejected. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Even though we like sheep had gone astray, yet the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was God's will to crush him, we read, to put him to grief so that he might bear the sins of many. Yes, Jesus Christ is able. Because though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. No, he emptied himself of all that heavenly glory and took on the form of a mere servant, a slave. He became a man. He endured the unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony of God's wrath. He did all that because he knew he could not do it. God gave his own son as sacrifice because he knew that we were not able. But for whom would God do all that for? For whom would Jesus go through all that humility and suffering? Well, he did it for his self-seeking and unworthy disciples. 
Even though they were so often, he was so often confronted by their pettiness and selfishness. Yes, even as we sit here this afternoon and reflect on who this Messiah is. Even now we know in our hearts that we so often fall into the same temptations. We fall into the same petty arguments. Perhaps this morning on the way to church. But brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ came to die for you. Not because you've got it all put together. No, because he loves his own sheep. Because he promised by his spirit that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Yes, he was forsaken so that we might be received by God. Well, praise and glory be to our Lord Jesus Christ. And indeed, for it is for this redeeming work that Christ received all glory and honor. We read in Philippians 2 that because of his obedience unto death, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. This was his reward and this is what he deserved. God bestowed that on him. And so Jesus told his disciples in verse 39, To sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. It is for those whom it has been prepared. It is for God to grant. Yes, and now that the story of redemption has been unfolded before our eyes, and the pettiness of our sins has been placed next to the amazing grace of God, then it's clear, isn't it? Who are we to seek glory for ourselves? Do we think for one minute that we deserve those seats on either side of Jesus? God will reward those whom he will reward. But is it not enough to delight in serving our God? Is it not enough to bask in the privilege of suffering for his name's sake, given that he bore the burden that we could not bear? Brothers and sisters, let us humbly serve God out of thankfulness. Let us rejoice to do the will of him who gave up everything for us. May it be our heart's desire to sing his songs of praise rather than to have his glory for ourselves. And that brings us to the second point, where we'll see that Jesus also instructs his disciples in the way of service. It doesn't take long before James and John's request reaches the ears of the other disciples. We read that they were indignant. Why? Well, based on Jesus' response, the ten were indignant not because of the foolishness of the question, but because they themselves wanted the place of honor. They were indignant that James and John had thought of it before they had. But Jesus is patient to teach them. He points out the irony of their selfish desires. Because it was their own Gentile rulers, their Roman overlords, that were so often accused of this very thing. Of lording it over their subjects. 
of pursuing power at all costs. But as Jesus points out, the disciples' desires are no different. They have their own ambitions, their own ideas of prestige and power that they would gain when Jesus was glorified. But Jesus says, no. There is a different way for his disciples. A way that does not seek power or control, but consists in service. It involves suffering. Rather than following the way of the world, instead, whoever would be great among you, amongst you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you should be your slave of all. If James and John wanted the most prominent places in the kingdom of God, they are not going to achieve that by asking it as a favor. If any of Jesus' followers desire prominence and importance in the kingdom of God, that's only going to come by way of humility and selflessness, by way of not seeking it. Jesus says elsewhere, whoever exalts himself will be humble." And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Like so many other things in the kingdom of God, it's backwards from the world around us. And indeed it is backwards what Jesus is calling for. Defining greatness in terms of servanthood. That would have been a radical idea in his day. A servant was one who assisted another who gets something done on behalf of another. It's always other-focused. And to be the slave of all, or bondservant of all, that takes it to an even another level. A bondservant was entirely committed to his master, owing absolute and exclusive obedience, not for any profit or thanks. Yes, for the free Greeks and the free Romans, It was abhorrent to imagine being entirely at the service of another. That your whole life would be committed to someone else. And that you would owe that person absolute obedience. The philosopher Plato once wrote, How can anyone be happy when he is the slave of anyone else at all? We need to recognize how radical this really was. Because if we search our hearts we will find the same natural inclinations to power and control as the disciples have. And if we look at the world around us, we will see that it has not changed. What Jesus calls for is still radical today. It goes against our natural inclinations and it goes against everything that the world has to say. We can see how that applies to leadership. Christ himself gives the church leaders, but they are not like the leaders of the world. No, as we read in 1 Peter 5, they are commanded to shepherd the flock, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in their charge, but by being examples. Yes, Christ gave leaders for his church for the sake of his flock, not the other way around. And so, You elders, deacons, pastors, our purpose is to serve the flock, to build up the body of Christ. Do you see yourselves as servants of Christ? 
Do you see yourselves when you sit around the consistory table as Christ's bondservants? There to serve the needs of the flock, to care for the sheep that are wandering or injured, to guard the flock against intruders? After all, Christ himself gave that example to us. That's what he says next in verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Yes, Jesus is the perfect example of what it means to be a servant and slave of all. His whole purpose in coming was not to be served, but to serve. He himself is the ultimate paradox, the ultimate backwardness of the world. That the Son of God would come to earth, empty himself of all his heavenly glory, and take the form of a servant. And this isn't some sort of theological distinction, something theoretical. No, Jesus showed from his actions and his teachings and his life that he had a servant heart. Perhaps the most stark example is in John 13. We read there that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God himself and was going back to God, this Jesus, we read, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and took a towel and tied it around his waist. He then poured water into a basin, bent down onto his knees before his own disciples, and he took their dirty, dusty feet into his hands, and he washed them. This is the Lord of heaven. It says in Colossians that he is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created. He was before all things, all the fullness of God dwelling in him. And he took the form of a servant. He took on the lowliest tasks of the slaves. He humbled himself to wash his disciples' feet. Why? Why would he do that? Well, he did it because he loved them, but he also did it as an example. We read that he got up from his knees and he told his disciples, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. And so to the brothers whom Christ has given the task of leading his flock, do we view ourselves in this way? Do we serve to this degree? If our Lord and Master has done so, ought not we to do the same? If the one by whom all things were created would serve in this manner, ought not all of us, brothers and sisters, to follow his example? to be servant-hearted, to be slave to all. This was only Jesus' human example after all, something for us to imitate. But it was not even Jesus' ultimate act of service. No, in his service, he humbled himself even more than that. He gave his very life as a ransom for many. That means he paid the price to secure someone's freedom. Only he could provide a ransom for many. 
Christ Jesus paid the price for our release to free us from the slavery of sin. That's made very clear in Isaiah 53, where Isaiah prophesies about the coming servant of the Lord. This servant has borne our griefs, he says, and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. Verse 11 says, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Yes, in the ultimate act of service, Christ gave up not only his heavenly glory, but he gave up his very life. His life for ours, one man in place of the many. And so in our text, Jesus pulls aside the disciples because he wants to teach them and us what kind of Messiah he really is and what kind of disciples we ought to be if we are to follow him. Only he could provide a ransom for many. But he also intended that his life would be an example for us. Our Lord God wants us to imitate him in his compassion, his love, his servant heart. Though sin destroyed our ability to do so, that is why Christ came. To pay the price for our sins. To make us righteous before God so that more and more by His Spirit we may once again reflect our God and Maker. Indeed, brothers and sisters, we've been given two very different examples. Two ways to live. On one hand, the world will always be there. It will be in our face until Christ returns. It's going to be there whether we look for it or not creeping up everywhere around us, distracting us with its messages, its temptations, its emphasis always on self, self-gratifying, self-seeking. It's in the workplace. It's on TV. It's in the values all around us. And so if that's not the example that we want to follow, then we need to be on guard on what we're taking in. We need to be cautious, watching out for each other. But the other option, the other way to live, the example given us by our Savior, like that in our text. And to really know that example, to follow it and live by it, we need to be in his word. We need to be meditating on all that he has done for us. So that his love for us would motivate us to love each other. We also need to be encouraging one another. Because this is the more difficult way. The narrow path, the often lonely path. It's a path associated with much suffering, a path of self-denial, a path of humble service. Yes, it's also the path that leads to glory, brothers and sisters. The glory of Christ that we can share in. Yes, if we want to go where he went, where he is, then let us walk as he did. Let us lay aside every weight, every sin that clings so closely. And let us not just walk, but run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him 
endured the cross, despising the shame, and who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us strive until that day when we will be with him in glory. Amen. Let's respond in song with hymn 25. This hymn is based on the words of Isaiah 53 and explicitly connects to the Son of God. Hymn 25, stanzas 1, 3, and 7.
In prayer this afternoon, we'll also remember the year 12s who start their exams tomorrow. Let's come to God in prayer. We thank you, our merciful God and Father, for once again bringing us together before you to listen to your word, the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that by your Spirit, this word would fill us and strengthen us for the week ahead. Lord, we confess that we so often do not allow your word to direct us as it should, but rather we allow ourselves to be tossed around by the values of the world. Too often we seek after the things the world seeks after. We seek to serve ourselves, to bring glory to ourselves. But you have graciously given us the example of your Son. Lord, your Son, Jesus Christ, came down into the world to be a servant, to serve rather than to be served. His life and death is an example for us. And so we humbly pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us to follow his example, to more and more be transformed into his image so that we show the same servant heart, so that we are eager to serve those around us, putting ourselves last, humbly denying ourselves. We also pray that you would help us to suffer well, if that be your will. That if on account of Christ we must face suffering, we pray that you would strengthen us to confess his name and that this would be a joy, a privilege to suffer in a small way for him who suffered for us. Lord, you've made this all clear from your word. But we come to you in prayer because we cannot do this on our own. We pray for your spirit to guide us, to strengthen us, we pray that you would equip us to serve each other, to be gracious to our spouse, to give of ourselves to our children. We pray that you would help us to recognize the opportunities that you've laid before us to serve. Yes, Lord, we pray that by our service you would build and expand your kingdom. There are so many that have not heard the good news of the gospel. So many who have not had their lives shaped by your son's example, shaped by the transforming work of your spirit. Our Father in heaven, please work in us the desire to make that good news known, to share it with those around us that they might share in the same joy that you've given us. When we think of this joy that you've given us, we see how that contrasts with the fear and hatred that consumes so much of the world. Each day again we're told of thousands more dying in Israel and Gaza, each day again, we're told of more airstrikes in Ukraine. Lord, you are the sovereign God. All these things are in your control. And so we pray that out of this darkness, you would shine your light. That people would recognize their need for you. That many would humble themselves before our Lord Jesus Christ. And may we as Christians also be a light. That our perspective of hope and trust in your sovereignty would point people to you. Lord, we remember the students in our midst. We pray that you would bless the year 12s as they begin their exams. We pray that you would grant them peace, that, they would help, that you would help them to trust in you. We pray, Lord, that you would grant them good memory, that they would give a good account of themselves. And we pray that in all of this, all glory would be to you. Lord, in all of this, we pray that your will be done. 
We know that everything happens as you plan it. And so we also pray that you would help us to do your will, to do as you command. And we pray that in all that we do this week, that you would bring glory and honor to your name. All of this we pray in your Son's name alone. Amen. We now have the opportunity to worship the Lord with our offerings. And following that, we'll sing together from hymn 41, Christ above all glory seated. Hymn 41, stanzas 1, 2, and 3.
Receive the blessing of your triune God and go your way in peace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.